there is something in life that is more powerful than the most heated argument we could ever have. There's something that reached deeper than just a friendship, as strong as that might be. There's something so incredibly powerful that it can change someone's life forever. And what is that? A hot and fresh Krispy Kreme donut. <laughs> okay, that's true. But it's not what we're talking about this morning. What is more, one of the things that's more powerful than anything we can experience as a human being on this planet is forgiveness. And I'm talking about the kind of forgiveness that is truly miraculous. See, it's been really fun going through this section of Matthew because I love the way that Matthew writes here. When it's time for him to list out a lot of the miracles of Jesus, he just goes for it. He just goes miracle after miracle after miracle after miracle. And it's actually kind of funny, a lot of scholars noticed, Matthew doesn't even take into account chronological order necessarily on some of the miracles. That wasn't what Matthew cared about in the moment. He was just like, hey, let me show you how amazing Jesus is. And then we get to this passage. One of the most popular miracles of Jesus that people love to go to, I can't count how many times as a child I heard this story in Sunday school because it's a wonderful story of the the people, the friends bringing their friend that's paralyzed and lowering down through the roof. And to Matthew, that's not even the important part. He doesn't even mention that part. Matthew skips straight to the point. And and I love it, though, because he focuses on the real miracle of this story. Because the real miracle of this story is not the physical healing of a paralyzed man. It has nothing to do with that. That's just the icing on the cake or the Krispy Kreme donut. (laughs) The real miracle in this story is what Jesus says to the man. It's the forgiveness that he offers. And church, if you're in here, if you are a Christian, if you have experienced that forgiveness of your sins for yourself, then you truly know what this man experienced. And you know the kind of miracle that it is. Maybe I can't speak for you, but I can speak for myself. That the fact that Jesus looked at a sinner like Jordan and extended forgiveness to me when I didn't deserve it, that is a true miracle. That's the kind of miracle that we're going to talk about today. Christ-like forgiveness is truly a miraculous event. And today's passage shows us a wonderful example of Jesus performing that miracle for someone else for us to see. But it also shows us a few responses that we have when we see Jesus perform a miracle like this. Because one of the real things we're going to see in today's passage is Jesus not leaving any question marks about who he is and what he came to do on earth. He's going to lay it out plain for the people to see. And so, any points you want to take down, they actually won't be on the the screen today, but they're very simple. It's just three responses to what happens in today's passage that I want us to see. And those those three responses are this. The response of Jesus, the response of the scribes, and the response of the crowds. With a fourth bonus one thrown in at the end, and we'll get there. So let's read the beginning of our passage again as we look at the response of Jesus in this passage. So starting in Matthew chapter 9 and verse 1, it says, And getting into a boat, he crossed over and came to his own city, which we know is Capernaum. And behold, some people brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. 
I want to lay out for us this scene because the other gospel accounts do reveal to us the the other part that Matthew doesn't, right? And I don't want us to miss, though, even though Matthew doesn't give us here, the very cinematic moment of what's happened here. See, a lot of these miracles that we've just been reading about have these huge buildups and a big climactic ending, right? We think about some of these uh, other scenarios, like the woman with the problem of blood who had to struggle and push her way through a crowd of people that she had no business being in just so that she could reach out and touch the edge of Jesus' robe. Can't you just visualize that in your mind? She reaches out, she touches him, and then she's healed, right? We had the leper who pleaded with Jesus to be willing to heal him. And what does Jesus do in an incredible, unexpected moment? He goes and he touches that man with leprosy. And he heals that man. We think of what we just saw um, before this passage, of Jesus passing through, and there's uh, um, these uh, men there demon-possessed with a lesion full of demons. And what does Jesus do? He sends those demons out. They go into a herd of pigs, and those pigs jump off of a cliff. These huge climactic, cinematic moments in our brains, right? And that's what's happened here. Jesus is in this house in Capernaum, and the house is so full of people ready and willing to hear Jesus that they're standing room only. They're stuffed to the brim of people. So these men come up, and they have their friend. They have him on a bed, and they bring him in, and they find out that they can't get through the doors to see Jesus. So what do they do? They figure it out anyway. They take, most like most of those houses would have a staircase to the roof. So they go to that staircase. They go to the roof. They rip away the roof patches, right? They, they didn't care. They just wanted to get their friend to Jesus. Imagine being the people down inside that house. You're already stuck. You can't move. You feel the dust coming down. You look up and there's sun rays beaming down through the ceiling now. And you look and what's happened? There's a man on a cot being lowered down through the roof in a standing room only house. And Jesus backs away as much as he probably could. And he looks and this man gets lowered in front of him. The people are probably backing up. Everyone in there, the apostles included, are looking and being like, wow, what is Jesus going to do next? And what does he do? He looks at the man with love. He sees their faith. And he says, your sins are forgiven. Wait a minute. (laughs) That's not it, right, Jesus? (laughs) You're supposed to do something big and miraculous, right? You're supposed to like reach out your hand or say something magical sounding, right? And heal this man. But no, all he says is, your sins are forgiven. You can almost imagine his closest followers like trying to nudge, nudge Jesus be like, you're going to keep going, right? <laughs> they, they went through all this trouble. You're gonna, you, you, this isn't all you have for us, right, Jesus? You're going to heal this man? You're going to go that extra step, right? See, the people were expecting a miracle, But they missed the greatest miracle that Jesus possibly could have given to that man. Jesus forgave his sins. See, Jesus knew that while paralysis was a very real problem for this man, and that would be addressed in a moment, Jesus knew what the ultimate problem that this man and every single human was actually dealing with. And that wasn't the problem of not being able to move. It was a problem of not being able to find forgiveness. It was a problem of sin. Especially studying this passage many times, many people have wondered if Jesus was insinuating here that maybe this man's paralysis was a punishment or a discipline because of a sin, and that's why Jesus leads off with that. I don't think that's what Jesus is talking about here. See, maybe, maybe it was, 
But the real point to remember is the main reason that that man is even able to suffer paralysis in the first place is because of the curse of sin. Every single ailment that any person in that room and any person in this room could ever suffer is because of the problem of sin. Why do we have so many beloved church members here that have gone through loss and pain recently? It's because of the curse of sin. And that's what Jesus understood. And so they bring him someone, and in that culture, don't miss this, there was basically no worse condition to have than paralysis. There was zero way that that man could take care of himself. He had no way to make money. He had no way to stay alive except for these blessed friends that he clearly had. See, they didn't have the kind of medical advances that we have. If there's someone who has a condition like that um, today, sure, they're going to be hindered, but there's still plenty of ways that they can enjoy life. This man was not going to be able to experience that. This was a life-ending condition that this man was facing, both physically and culturally. So Jesus went to the root of his problem, though. And he did the ultimate miracle. See, why did that woman... Suffer that medical problem and condition that she had? Sin. Why did that man struggle with leprosy? Because his body was affected under the curse of sin. Why had those men um, struggled with being uh, possessed by demons? Because of the curse of sin. Why do we struggle these things? Because of this curse of sin. That started with Adam and Eve, and it came down through the line, and it got to us. Why does the world suffer natural disasters? Why do we just have hurricanes that cause damage on the coast? Why are there earthquakes? Why are there floods? Because of the curse of sin that we brought. Let's not remove ourselves from this. (laughs) We can't blame Adam and Eve either. The problems in the world and the problems in our lives might not always necessarily be an exact and pointed discipline to us, but they are because of our sin. And just like this man had zero way to remove his physical condition and his problem, without Jesus, we have absolutely no way to remove the problem of sin in our lives. There's nothing we can do. We are the ones laying on the cot, completely unable and undeserving to, for, to find forgiveness. And yet that's where Jesus finds us. I remember so many times as a kid, I might not have been a horrible, horrible child, but I was still a kid and a teenager, and there were plenty of times that I repeatedly would disobey my parents. I would promise them, I'm not going to do this thing anymore, and what would happen? I would do the thing some more, and I would get in trouble again, and even though discipline followed as it rightly should have, I especially know as a parent now, (laughs) discipline followed, but I could always trust that even when I broke my parents' trust, they would still forgive me. And that was such an incredible lesson as a child to know that even though I clearly didn't deserve it in that moment, my parents offered me that gift. And that's what Jesus offers for us. Jesus' response is way more miraculous than we could expect. He looks at this man and he offers the ultimate healing first that this man needed. Jesus wasn't being like, facetious he knew that this man needed physical healing but he was offering the real miracle first and church he offers that same miracle to us if you are in here this morning and you haven't experienced that forgiveness of jesus maybe you are still in that condition of the paralyzed man and maybe the reason you haven't accepted that forgiveness is because you've you've been weighed down by the thoughts of i don't deserve forgiveness 
I'm too sinful. I'm too broken. I'm too messed up. There's no way Jesus is going to love me. But that's the kind of Jesus, or that's the kind of forgiveness that our Jesus offers. That's the kind of Savior that He is. He doesn't look at us and say, I forgive you because you deserve it, because then, church, none of us would be going to heaven. (laughs) None of us would find salvation. None of us deserve it. And yet, Jesus offers it to us anyway. See, Once sin is ultimately forgiven and redemption has taken place, all sickness and death and paralysis will be done away with forever. So Jesus deals with the first thing first. That's Jesus' response. But then we have the response of the scribes. Look at what the scribes say here and then what Jesus kind of does in response. It says in verse uh, 3, And behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, This man is blaspheming. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why do you think evil in your hearts? For which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Rise and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He then said to the paralytic, Rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and went home. Jesus' response is to look at this man and say, your sins are forgiven. And these scribes that are there have an immediate response. They start talking amongst themselves and say, whoa, 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 whoa. He can't do that. This man is blaspheming. And now before we immediately jump on them and start saying, oh, you foolish scribes, let's remember that at the moment, as far as they knew, especially maybe if they hadn't seen all the things Jesus had said and done yet, this wasn't a completely wrong assumption for them to make. Right? See, in their eyes, they just saw someone claim to do what only God can do. The scriptures say that only God can offer forgiveness for all of man's sins. See, this man had not gone to the temple and offered a sacrifice to the high priest and then offered a prayer of forgiveness to the Lord. No, Jesus had met this man where he was and said, I forgive your sins. And the scribes say, hold up, only God can do that. This man is blaspheming. So before we toss him under the bus, they're not exactly wrong yet. (laughs) But it's their next response where they falter. Jesus knows exactly what they're thinking. And in a pretty humorous way, I love the way Jesus does this here. He looks at them and says, hey, why are you thinking these thoughts? And why is this what you have a problem with? See, just like the other people, the scribes were expecting Jesus to do some big miraculous healing physically. That's what they were waiting for. That's what they were wanting to see and what they were wanting to hear. And Jesus says, look, guys, which one is actually going to be harder for me to say to someone, your sins are forgiven, or for me to say to a man, get up, stop being paralyzed, and walk? (laughs) Because anyone can look at somebody and say, hey, Alex, your sins are forgiven. Is there any real way to prove that I just use, you know, God-like authority to forgive Alex's sins? No. But is it going to be pretty hard if Alex has never walked before for me to say, Hey, Alex, get up and go home. (laughs) That's a much harder thing to do. So what does Jesus do? He said, But so that you will know that the Son of Man has the authority on earth to forgive sins, he proves it. This is also exactly what the Old Testament prophets would have to do to prove that they were actual prophets of God. What the people of God would do to make sure that these prophets were true is that they would see if their immediate prophecies of God would actually happen, would actually come true, right? And so Jesus says, look, I'm going to prove to you that I am who I say that I am. 
I have forgiven his sins, and to help you out, and to make sure you know that I am true, and that I am the Son of God, the Son of Man, get up and walk. And what happens? The man gets up and walks. An incredible miracle. This man who couldn't even get in, in there to see Jesus without the help of his friends is now able to get up and walk. And Matthew doesn't mention this man's response, but the other writers do. It says that he goes home worshiping. Wouldn't you? <laughs> you never be able to walk before. He gets up. He takes his, probably, probably left his cot. And he just goes, probably left it at the door, and runs home worshiping, high-fiving his friends the whole way. Right? Goes home worshiping God. But these scribes, among all of the people, and we're going to see what the crowd's responses was, were sorry, <laughs> in a moment. But the scribes' response is very telling. And it's a very loud response, even though it's actually completely silent. Because then the scribes don't say anything. At least not in this passage. See, they were very quick to accuse Jesus of blaspheming. <laughs> When, he's, when he clear, or just simply said, your sins are forgiven, they say, whoa, 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 you can't claim to be God. But then as soon as Jesus proved that he was God, they were silent. See, these men were suddenly stuck with a dilemma. And they're stuck with the same dilemma that every single human today that has not accepted Jesus as their Savior is stuck with. These men clearly saw Jesus prove who he said he was, and then their response was silence. And actually later in the book of Matthew and in the Gospels, we'll see one of their other responses as they actually decide to say, well, hey, Jesus is able to heal people through the power of demons. That's what we've come up with. And then later their further response is going to be to side with the Pharisees and the religious leaders to have Jesus arrested and executed. But how could they do that? How could they clearly see what these other people in the house and what this healed man saw and have that response? Well, Paul would later write how they could do that for us in the book of Romans. This won't be on the screen, but you can um, hear this from Romans chapter 1. Paul writes this, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who listen to this, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. Why, did, and, why and how could these scribes see Jesus, prove who He says He was, and still not believe? It's because they suppressed the truth. It's a wonderful thing teaching middle schoolers. <laughs> Any other person in here ever taught middle schoolers? Okay. My favorite thing about teaching middle schoolers is they don't mince words, do they? <laughs> Whether that's good or bad. They tell you exactly what's on their minds. And I, I've taught middle school Bible for a long time, and I love teaching about creation theories. I love teaching about how the world was made. I was just doing this two days ago with a couple of 6th, six, 7th, uh, six, and 8th graders. And I love showing the different worldviews and ideas that aren't biblical, like the Big Bang and how the, um, they teach that no, there was nothing and then the nothing exploded and then suddenly there was everything. And I love the little sixth grader that raised his hand and he was like, that sounds dumb. <laughs> and I was like, all right, well, we're not going to use that term. That's not how we want to talk to people, but yes. <laughs> but that little sixth grader could clearly see through the creation that God has made that it pointed to God. He didn't have all the things figured out yet, but he knew that much. He could clearly see what creation points to. 
And so many people today see the truth that's around them. We have more access to God's true written word than we've ever had before. People see it. Not everybody's read it, no. But there are so many people that have seen it, they've read it, they've memorized some of it. And why don't they listen? Because just like those scribes, they have to suppress it. They make that choice because owning up to our own mistakes and our own sins is very hard to do. They don't want to have to be in that position that paralyzed man found himself in. Well, I don't want to have to own up to my sins so that Jesus can forgive me because that's going to mean I was wrong all this time. That's hard to do. It's hard to come to terms with our own selfishness and pride and sin. And so their response was to suppress the truth. But then there's one other group that we see their response. And this one starts out good, and then we start to see it fade off at the end. And it's the response of the crowds. Look at how this ends in verse 7. Well, verse, uh, really verse 8. So verse 7 says, The man rose and went home. And when the crowd saw it, they were afraid, and they glorified God, who had given such authority to men. These crowds were so close. <laughs> In their response to what Jesus did here. It said that they were filled with fear. Other versions, translations say they were filled with awe and wonder. Right? And then it says they start worshiping God. Now if that was it, and I wish it was. I wish there was a period there and the story stopped. Because we would say, man, that's a good response to have. Unlike the scribes, these people saw what Jesus did and they start worshiping God. That's a good thing. In all honesty, I think a lot of Christians could do do more of that. We love to offer up our prayers to God for deliverance, for healing, for strength. And then when God answers our prayers, it's like, we're like, all right, thanks God. And we go on with our lives. I think there's something to be said and learned from this that we we should have an overflowing of worship to God when we see him do something miraculous. But then they kept, Matthew kept writing. And they kept talking. Because it says what they were worshiping God for is he said they glorified God who had given such authority to men. This is where they missed it. They still didn't quite believe that Jesus was truly God's son. That Jesus was truly who he said he was. And I think a part of that is because they got caught up in the awe and the wonder of the moment of that miracle. And a lot of times, especially, we've been, it's kind of funny, this series we've been doing on the kingdom of God, it's like me and Alex have become a broken record, right? We keep like talking about what a real Christian looks like other than what a cultural Christian looks like. And I fear that a lot of cultural Christianity has become a lot of people getting awestruck at things that churches do and stop focusing on the God that the churches are supposed to be worshiping. Now, there's a lot of big churches that can afford to have really cool big stages and lights and sound systems. And do hear me, I do not think those things are necessarily wrong. There are plenty of churches that can afford those things and they use those things to still point people to worshiping Jesus. But the unfortunate side effect that can even still happen in a well-intended church is a person can show up and they get caught up in a huge worship band experience and they, they're caught up and like, wow, this is really amazing. And then they don't even focus on the words that they're singing. 
And they're not focusing on being awestruck by the Savior that that song is talking about. And they go, wow, that worship artist was really good. (laughs) Anybody remember the old worship song, The Heart of Worship? That came out a long time ago when I was a teenager. (laughs) I'm actually blanking on, this wasn't in my notes, I'm blanking on who sung that song. I cannot remember who it was. Um, But the reason he wrote that song was because he had noticed that when he would have worship concerts and when people would come, that there were people that would hold up signs and they would chant his name because they were excited to see him and not to worship Jesus. And that struck him to his core. And he said, I, I, I got to get back from this. And so he wrote the song, I'm coming back to the heart of worship where it's all about you, Jesus. We have to be careful. But it's not just big churches with giant stages. It can happen here. At George's Creek, let's be honest, one of the reasons a lot of us love coming here is because of how wonderful Alex's sermons are. Don't look at me and Claire as I I fill up your head for a second. (laughs) Alex does wonderful sermons. If you don't know the amount of time and effort he puts into them, it's incredible. We love coming here because of the way that Alex lifts up Jesus through his sermons. The amount of information you will walk out of with every sermon or listening to a podcast from him is incredible. But if we're not careful, some of us might end up being here and we walk out going, man, Alex gave a wonderful sermon today. He was just, he sounded so intelligent. He did all of these incredible things and we might run the risk of missing out on the truths of the scripture that Alex was trying to get us to hear. See, I want to make sure we understand this, church, that yes, I want people to walk, I want people to have a sense of awe in Jesus, but that's not the point. See, we don't do things as a church so that people will just be amazed by Jesus. We do things as a church so that people will be saved by Jesus. And if all of that awe and wonder and the things that we do, if all of the programs that we do as a church only make it so that people come here and they have fun, it means nothing if they aren't pointed to the truth that these crowds were missing. We need to move from a moment of awe and wonder, which we should have, into focusing on who gives us that awe and wonder in the first place. And the main thing that we can have awe and wonder and fear and amazement over is the same thing that that man experienced that day. It's that a broken human like me and you can come before Jesus, or maybe it wasn't even you. Maybe like that man, you had a friend or a loved one drag you to Jesus. (laughs) Maybe, well, he couldn't kick and scream, but maybe you were. And Jesus is offering us forgiveness. And church, if there's anyone here who has not experienced that, I pray that today would be that day that you could. Because there is one final fourth response to this, and it's ours. What is our response to what we see Jesus do here? As I said at the beginning, he doesn't hide anything from us here. He makes it clear. Jesus claimed his deity in this story. He said, I have the authority to forgive sins. And it has nothing to do with whether you deserve it or not, or whether you are able or not. It has to do with me and what I am going to do. And that's what he offers to us today. If you've been a skeptic, if you've been like wondering, is this Jesus really who he said he was? Don't suppress that truth. Don't look at this and say, I'm just going to hold it to myself. I'm going to give, you know, I'm just going to let these Christians believe what they want to believe. No, trust in who Jesus says he is. If you have questions, uh, Alex and Joseph and I will be down front here in just a moment. Come talk to us. 
We would love to pray with you. Or you can come to the altar. You can pray where you are. But know that Jesus is offering that forgiveness to you today. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this wonderful